to the brave men and women who stood up for freedom, who answered the call and fought for our nation, who paid the ultimate price and never came back. To the American soldier, we thank you. To the mothers and fathers who raised a hero, to the brothers and sisters, with an empty space, to the sons and daughters who have only memories, to the wives and husbands who bear the void with pride, to all who've lost a soldier they love, no gift could repay your sacrifice, no tribute could match our admiration, no word can contain our gratitude, but still, it deserves to be said, we remember you, we salute you, and we honor you today.
Let's pray together. Would you join me? Father, we thank you that we get to live where we live. We, we say that often, and we hope that we will never take that for granted, the freedoms that have been earned for us. We praise you. We know it is for freedom's sake that you have set us free, and we want to live freely through your Spirit. Thank you for those who have given their lives that we might enjoy the freedoms we have. And we thank you, Father, for, um, for those who even now are serving our country. And as we've prayed many times, I pray that we will remember those serving now on Veterans Day and not on this day. God, we remember even as we think about those who gave up their lives, we, we can't, as Christians, not say thank you that you gave your life that we might be saved. And so we praise you and we give you honor. And we ask that you would bless those families who are suffering today as they remember time and time again, but especially on this day as they remember those they've lost. Help us, Lord, to worship with the freedoms we've been given. We've been, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. It is good to see y'all come on in, and it is glad to, we're glad to have all of you. It looks like a lot of people are celebrating Memorial Day weekend and, and out and about, but we're glad you're here. Uh, Mike and Debbie Colston are here. We're glad you're here. Um, Mike was youth minister here. What year? 1960. <laughs> and Debbie played the organ. Is that right? Field down. I'm about to say we could do a duel, and y'all could play... You know, we do it on the piano sometime. I've never seen it on the organ, but, um, but we are glad all of you are glad to have you here and glad all of you here. If you look in your worship guide, there are a couple of announcements. One, next week we'll be voting on deacons, and so please pray over those names. Um, and then you see some information about the VBS. And then the second week of June, we'll have a combined service. And we do that around Vacation Bible School anyway, but we're doing it this time, and we'll be coming to the Lord's table and do some things a little different. I think it's going to be a service that you won't want to miss. It'll be a great time of worship and prayer leading us up to the Lord's table. So we hope that you make plans for that. We're glad you're here. Why don't you stand up and greet those who are around you? Hello. All right, we are glad that you're here, and um, let me make sure I get it right. We have our call to worship, and then following that, we'll have our scripture reading. So let's remind ourselves of who it is we're worshiping straight out of Isaiah chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Read it out loud with me. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Hot. <laughs> and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's worship him. As Scott comes, if you're wondering, come on up. If you're wondering why we've read out of the book of Acts, last week was Ascension Day. Today is Pentecost Sunday. So we want to remember that in our scripture reading. Today's reading will be out of uh, the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was offered, excuse me, uttered through the prophet Joel. This is the word of God. Stand and join our voices as we sing hymn number 453, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms.
pray with me? Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you and pray that this choir is saying that we will trust in you. We can't always see the things you're doing. We can't always understand them, but we trust you. You always do what is good. You always do what is right. And you always do it in perfect timing, even when we want you to do it yesterday. You're always right on time. And we praise you and we thank you. Father, I, I lift this service to you. We pray for those who are not able to be with us today. We pray that you would help Dale Owens continue to recover. Be with Ray Johnson. I pray that you'd be with Jim Mann as he recovers, that you would bless him. We pray for Scott Fields and so many others who are struggling with um, recovering surgery and other things. We pray for Rita, that you would bring healing to her. God, we ask that that you would relieve her of the pain. We pray, Father, that, that you would bless Myra and that you would bless the family and comfort them. And Lord, you know the other needs. There are many in this room. There are many in this city and this state, this nation, this world. We lift them to you and know that you've given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. So God, I pray that today, as we look at your word, your implanted word inside of us, that we'll grow and bear fruit. Bless now the reading of your word and the preaching of your word, I pray. And help us as we are obedient to your word, as we apply your word. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're making our way through James, and we've come to James chapter 2, verse 14. If you have your Bibles... I encourage you to turn there. This Wednesday night, we'll finish up our uh, study in Romans 1, and then um, we'll be, as we have in the last few years, there'll be no activities on Wednesday nights, um, other inquired, and a few other things on uh, in, in the month of June and July. And uh, so, um, but we will finish up in here, this Romans chapter 1 this week. So James chapter 2, verse 14, if you're able, I invite you to stand and honor the reading of God's word. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. On Friday morning, I was sitting outside and going through the readings that I do and, and my prayer time. And, and then I turned to this passage and, and was reading and just meditating on the book of James. And, and as I was doing that, I realized that I'd missed something um, back in chapter 1. And it's, it's not just a little thing. It, it's really, I think, what, what 
what will help us understand and what drives everything that James is saying through this section. And so as I was reading it and went back and looked at it, if you remember, if you want to look back in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 18, James tells us that we're brought forth by the word of truth. So God brings us forth. It's the idea of gives us birth. And he does it by the word of truth. Obviously, we, we, we're convicted by the Spirit through the word of truth. And we, we confess him and we believe in him. But he brings us forth by the word of truth. And then in chapter 1, verse 21, we're told that, that we're to receive with meekness the implanted word that is able to save your souls. And so I was sitting there Friday morning just thinking about the, the word that brought us, that we were saved by the word through the word and by the work of the Holy Spirit through the word. And then I began to think about this implanted word, this word that God has implanted inside of us. Obviously, through the Holy Spirit, he's now inside of us. And, and it's planted, um, the word is planted for, for one reason. Why do you plant anything? If, if I'm to go out and I finally, it quit raining and it wasn't windy and I burned off my burn pile so I can till up my garden finally. But if I go and plant purple hole peas, why do I plant those seeds? I want fruit. I want it to grow. I want it to develop. And when you think about the Word of God being implanted in us, it, it's, it's planted inside of us for one purpose. The purpose of that Word is planted inside of us to bear fruit for the glory of the one who planted it. That's God. God plants that inside of us. And, and we don't have time to go over all the verses about bearing fruit that we could go over this morning. But I would just remind you of John 15. Where Jesus says that he's the vine and that the Father is the vine dresser. And the one thing we see in that passage is that the Father is interested in fruit. He plants and he tends the vine so that it will bear fruit. If the word of God is implanted in us, as James 1.19 says, then it will bear fruit. If we're saved by the word, and that word's now implanted in us, through the Holy Spirit, we will grow, and the word will grow in us and through us, and we will bear fruit. It changes the way we live. If the word's bearing fruit, we become, as James said in chapter 1, doers of the word, and not just hearers. We see that as the Word grows in us, as, as we grow in the Word, that, that it becomes a law of liberty. It sets us free. We know that by the Word that, that we're able, and we'll see more of this in the weeks to come, but he says in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that we're to bridle our tongues, that we're to be changed in the way that we speak. And we're to take care of the least of these. And we saw that in, 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 the, in, in our previous passage. That we're to keep ourselves unstained from the world. It's the product of, of the Holy Spirit using the word to, to bring forth fruit in our life. It changes everything about us. It changes how we treat people. We've been studying this. We, we don't show favoritism. 
the word points us to the all-glorious one. It points us to Jesus. And if we're looking to Jesus as the all-glorious one, then we don't differentiate between those who are poor and those who are rich. We, we don't look and, and make a difference in the church between those who are famous and those who aren't. We treat everyone with the same dignity because we know that they're all come to the cross on level ground. It leads us, as James said last week, to, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. The word's implanted in us. The word begins to bear fruit in and through us. The word produces obedience in and through us. And on this Pentecost Sunday, let's remember that all of this is done because the Holy Spirit of Jesus now lives inside of us. It changes everything about us. Saving faith comes from the work of the Father through his word. We believe in him. We trust in him through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we grow in holiness, and, and that comes through the Spirit inside of us, and it comes through the Word of God that's now been implanted in us. It comes through the work of the Spirit, and James drives this point home. But remember that everything James is about to say about faith and about works is only possible because we've been saved, because we've been born again, because that word inside of us is now growing and bringing fruit for the glory of the Father. As we turn to our text, it's, um, it's without a doubt one of the hardest sections of James. These are the kind of verses that keep preachers from preaching through James. Like Hebrews with Melchizedek. Th those are reasons that some preachers choose those for other times. And it's not because it's hard to understand. It's easy to understand what James is saying. But we have been versed in the theology of Paul, haven't we? And that's a good thing. Because Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit just as James does. But coming out of the Reformation as, as those who, who have been um, out of that, we, we, we drive home the point that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And we know that these are true. And, and what James says, hear me clearly, seems to be in conflict with what Paul says. And that's what gives us trouble. Look at verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, if you know Paul, that ought to cause you to say, what? Wait a minute. Because Paul in Romans 3.28 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so when you look at this, we, we know, and Paul builds on that. He, he hammers on that in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3 and in Ephesians 2. Does, does the Bible contradict itself as some tell us it does? How do we deal with Paul saying that we're justified by faith apart from works and James saying that we're justified by works and not by faith alone? How do we deal with that? I think it's helpful at the very beginning for us to understand that James is not standing face to face with Paul and fighting him. James is standing back to back with Paul. And they're fighting different enemies. 
Got to see this. James and Paul are fighting two different enemies. And one of the things we have to do when we study Scripture is to see what they're dealing with in the context. Paul places his focus in many of the passages on the time before we're converted. Paul talks about how we're saved. And it is by faith alone. We're not by works. But James is dealing with those who say that they have been saved, but they don't need to bear fruit. James is dealing with people who say, well, I've been saved. I don't have to work. I'm saved by grace. I'm saved by faith. It doesn't matter if I have fruit or not. In other words, Paul fights those who who say you have to work to earn your salvation. And James fights those who say once you're saved, you don't have to do anything. You're saved. Once saved, always saved. You're good to go. Now, I believe in perseverance of the saints. I believe that once you're truly saved, you're saved. So does Paul and so does James. So let's look at what we're saying here. We have to nail down what I said. They're fighting different enemies. They're talking about two different things. One's talking about how you're saved. One's talking about how you live after you're saved. He starts with two rhetorical questions. Two rhetorical questions. The very beginning of it. What good is it, my brothers? What good is it, my sisters? If someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Now that's the first question. And the implied answer is, what good is it? It does no good. If someone has faith, but doesn't have works, It's of no use. It's of no good. That word good is only used here and in verse 16 and in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. 1 Corinthians 15, 32, and the way it's translated helps us here. Paul says, what do I gain if humanly speaking I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That little phrase, what do I gain, is the same phrase or same word that James uses, what good is it? So if we go back to James, where he says, what good is it, my brothers? You could translate it as it did in Corinthians, what do I gain, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? You gain nothing. You gain nothing from that. That's the idea. What do I gain? A key to understanding this verse, if you look at it, what good is it, my brothers? Underline, if you like to underline, if someone says, says, just because you say it doesn't mean you have it, right? Someone walks up to you and wants to buy your car. You set the price. They say, I've got it in the bank. Let me drive your car. I'm going to go get it and bring it back to you. Just because they say they have it doesn't mean they have it. Just because someone says they have faith doesn't mean they have faith. And we see that in the Bible. You can have faith and say that you have faith. You can say that you have faith and mean something totally different than what the Word of God teaches about faith. You can say, I have faith And mean nothing more than wishful thinking. Well, I hope I go to heaven when I die. It's just wishful thinking for many. 
But the Bible says, faith is the assurance, assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith in the Bible is not wishful thinking. Faith in the Bible is trust. Just as the choir sang. Just as you sat on those pews, put your full weight on them, and trusted it to hold you up. You trust in the final work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You trust in what he did. Because this is what God said he would do. And you place faith in that and you trust in that. It's total trust. Well, the second question is in that same verse. He says, can that faith save him? Two rhetorical questions. What good is it? And can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? There are two extremes when we look at this passage. One is to say, we look at that, well, that means faith doesn't save. But we know from the scriptures that it does. So some would say, well, this means faith doesn't save. And others would say, and we could call this non-lordship theology that says, well, you can have faith and, and, and no works and, 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 and it's okay. And, and James is coming after that idea that you don't have to worry about works. You don't have to worry about fruit. You just pray, you have faith, you have wishful thinking, and you're okay. Both the rhetorical questions have an implied answer of no. No, it does not save. No, it is of no good. Well, that comes to the second point, and that's four illustrations. Now, it may bug some of you that I said four illustrations and I only have A and B. There's a reason for that. We'll get to C and D next week, okay? Because if I left C and D, you'd come up to me, some of you, and say, what, what are the blanks? I didn't fill in all the blanks, and so, so I'm not going to do it. So we're going we're gonna to go back and, and look at those next week and, and finish it out with looking at Abraham and Rahab. But here's the first thing you see. You remember in the early chapter, he talked about those who come in that rich man that comes in and that poor man that comes in, well, he comes back and we, we see the needy man. The needy man. This is the first illustration. James says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Let's just stop there real quick. That, that word for poorly clothed could literally be naked. They come in with no clothing. But most likely, most likely it means they only have the inner linen cloth that they would wear under their robe. They're not, as we might say, properly dressed because that's all they have. They, they have the inner garments but not the outer robe. They're dressed in rags. We'll leave for Tanzania in a couple weeks and, and it's amazing to watch how the different children dress. Some of them are are dressed with new shorts and new shirts. They have to wear the same clothes for, for whatever school they're in. And some of them, their shorts are torn all to pieces and tied in holes. And their shirts are all ripped up and, and they're dirty. And you can tell they, they have nothing. And so you see this person. They come in. They're dressed in rags. And it says, and they lack in daily food. Now, literally, that could be they just lack enough food for the day. But most likely, it means that habitually, they don't have any food. 
They're always hungry. What do we do with a person like that? How does faith respond to a person like this? James shows the opposite of faith. He says, and one of you says to them, says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Well, bless your heart. Isn't that nice? You're hungry. Go in peace. You don't have any clothes. Be warm. Go on. Take care. And it's really, just think about it. Go in peace is a biblical blessing. And you're biblically blessing this person who has nothing. You're saying, well, just go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And that's just the Baptist way of saying, I'm praying for you now. You look at a person without a job and say, hang in there. God's going to provide. You look at someone who has a need. Take it easy now. I'm thinking about you. That's what James is saying. He says, you say these things, but look at it. He says, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that, he asks? What good is a faith that looks at a need and says, go be blessed. But the faith doesn't cause you to act upon the need. James is dealing with this. John, John the apostle deals with this in 1 John. Chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, John really deals with it. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So take that verse. Just keep it up there, James, for a moment. And let's think about the person who has no clothes. That doesn't mean you have to go and buy them the nicest clothes that are out there if you can't afford those things. But it does mean that you could go and get them some new clothes. Or you could give them some clothes that you have and you don't wear. And someone who's hungry... Faith should lead us to love them as we would love ourselves. What would we want if we were hungry? We would want to be fed. So feed them. Help them. Clothe them. Help them. Because if you have the world's goods and you do nothing to help, what good is that? Have you seen the videos that they do intentionally where someone poses as a street person and they ask People who have a lot of means to help, and all of those people walk by them and say, nothing, I ain't got nothing. But they come up to a homeless person who's begging and has just a few dollars, and they ask for help, and that homeless person splits the money they have with them. Happens over and over again. We should be helping the needs that are around us. That's the point he's making. He says, you say you have faith, but you see a brother or sister in need, and you just cover it up with religious talk and, and do nothing to help That faith does no one any good. It doesn't help the needy person. And understand this, it doesn't help you. It does nothing. He sums it up in verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. Dead. In verse 17, in the ESV, he says that kind of faith 
is, or excuse me, uh, it's dead in verse 17. It's useless in verse 20. And then you come down to verse 26, he'll say it's dead for a second time. The point is this. True faith changes the way we live. It's not just in taking care of homeless people. It's not just in feeding people. That's not the whole thing of Christianity. He's just using this as a point that true faith changes the way we live. The implanted word bears fruit if you're a child of God. The second illustration is in verses 18 and 19. And James introduces to us an objector, the objector. It's as if James knows as he's writing this what some people are going to say. I mean, if you've taught, you know what people are going to say. And as I write sermons, I know what people are going to say to that. And so you try to answer those questions. And, and that's what James does. He, he knows what people are going to say when he says what he just said. So he, he, he introduces what many believe, and I agree, is an imaginary person. But someone, on, someone will say. Someone will say. And he says, but, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. You, you have faith, I have works. It's kind of like someone else has said, it's like we treat spiritual gifts. Someone comes and talks about evangelism and, 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 and if we're not careful, we'll say, well, you're gifted with evangelism, but I'm gifted with service. So you be you and I'll be me. And that's kind of what you find here. They're treating this like you might spiritual gifts. That's not the way. I'm more gifted just to to believe you're gifted to work. And what Paul is saying and and what James is saying and, and what Peter says and what John says and what Jesus said is that if you're saved by grace, works will follow. We need to see this. It's a spiritual gift. There there is a spiritual gift of faith, but that's not what James is talking about here. He's talking about the faith that we have to have to be saved. And that's why he comes back to them and says, show me your faith from apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. How else do you show faith? How else do we show the world that we've been saved other than by the way we live? By the way we speak, by the way we desire, by the way we act. The world's not interested in what we say we believe. They're interested in seeing that we live differently because we believe. And that's exactly what James is saying in our passage. He shocks us with some proof of what he's saying. Look what he says. You believe that God is one? Now, we're not Jewish. Most of us, maybe there might be someone here that I'm not aware of. We certainly didn't grow up in Israel where three times a day at least you said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. They said it at least three times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every Jewish person and And James is writing to Jewish Christians. They knew that God was one. 
You believe that God is one? Well, of course we believe that. That's the basic point of orthodox belief, that we believe in one God who, who lives and expresses himself in three persons. He's, he, he's one in, in, in person and three in essence. We, we believe that. We, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he's one. James says, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons know that God is one. They know that. They know and believe in the Trinity. They've seen it. They've heard it. They've experienced it. They know that Jesus is the only way to get to salvation. Demons know the truth. They know the word of God. That's why when Jesus is tempted, Satan quotes it back to him. Have you seen... God in his glory, demons have. Because at one time they weren't fallen angels, they were angels. They've seen God in his glory. They've seen God on the throne. That's why when Jesus showed up, what will you have to do with us? We know who you are. And look what James says. The demons believe and shudder, tremble. That word shudder is always connected with a response or a reaction when encountering the supernatural. You see it every time in the Bible. When someone encounters the supernatural, they fall on their faces. The demons, they, they believe that God is one, but they're not saved. They don't turn to God. They don't worship God now. They believe that God exists, but it hasn't changed them. I mean, that's pretty good evidence that, that faith without works does us save. And that's what James is showing us. I was hoping to get to all four illustrations, but as I was writing it, I knew that I wouldn't. But let me just close with this. God has called us to a salvation that is by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, for his glory alone. That's exactly what Paul says. And I promise you, if you would have sat down with Paul and James in the early days of the Christian faith, they both would have agreed with that. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for his glory alone. God has called us to a salvation that is by grace, not by works. God saves us by his grace through the word of truth. God implants that word inside of us through his Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit begins to bear fruit in our life. To have what James calls the implanted word within us is to bear fruit. But to bear no fruit goes against everything the Bible teaches so I will say it again. No one is saved by works. It's always by grace. But those who are saved by grace are never saved apart from works. You're not saved by works, but the grace that saves you brings works. Because now the Spirit's inside of you. 
And he who declares you not guilty and righteous with the righteousness of Christ in justification is the same one who sanctifies us, who makes us holy, who makes us like Christ. And he skips that process, and no one, no one skips that process. So we're saved by grace alone, not by works, but the salvation that comes by grace brings works. And that's what Paul and that's what James are teaching. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for his glory alone. But James says, that salvation produces something in you. So go back to that mirror illustration for a moment. When you look in the mirror of God's word, what do you see? Flesh? Or a changed and being changed person. When you study, when you look into the pages of this word, the spirit who inspired it is the spirit who lives inside of us. And that spirit will produce transformation. Transformation. You may not be able to see my fruit as visibly as you see your own. I may not see your fruit as visible as I see in someone else's. And I'm looking at the wall. I'm not looking at any of you when I say that. But the point is this. If you're saved by grace, there's got to be fruit. There's got to be fruit. Because the Spirit of God lives inside of you. Amen? Would you bow your heads for a moment? I just want you to look at your life today. To look at your life. Not at someone else's. I don't compare my life with a Billy Graham. I don't compare my life with a John Stott or an A.W. Tozer. But as I just finished reading Tozer yesterday, I look at his fruit and I evaluate my own life. And when I look at the scriptures, I see what I'm supposed to be. And I evaluate. Am I being what God says I'm supposed to be? Am I doing what God says I'm supposed to do? Can I see transformation? Can I see fruit? Can my wife see fruit in my life? Can my children look at me and see a difference because I'm filled with the Spirit? Will my grandchildren know a difference in my life? Because the word is lived out. That's the question today. And hear me well, just with your heads bowed. If there's no fruit, then the Bible says there's evidence of no root. That you're not in the Lord, in the Spirit. Not perfect. 
but no fruit whatsoever shows there's a problem in your life and you need to see what that is. Some fruit is good, but I want to grow. I want to be filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit for His glory. Father, I pray that you'd speak to us now. And Lord, as as we come to this time, I know that the enemy whispers to us. He whispers condemnation. Sometimes he just whispers, you're good, don't listen to him. But Holy Spirit, I pray we'd listen to you right now. I pray that we would repent of those things that we need to repent of. And that we would walk in your spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. That we'd be led by you, Holy Spirit. That we would live in you. Just as we need breath to live and oxygen to live, we need you, Holy Spirit, to live. And may we keep in step with you. We walk by someone long enough, we start matching their gait. And some of us have been saved long enough to be walking in step with you, Holy Spirit. If we're not, show us why. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing, My Faith Looks Up to Thee. And If you need to do something public, Tim and I will be here to help you with that. just for a moment. Um, first, while you're seated, let's celebrate. Patsy has retired. She's been teaching for 50 years in the Pell City School System. Not quite, but congratulations, Patsy. Um, Dondi's leading the way in clapping, so we, we just want to celebrate with you on that.
Uh, we had several who graduated as well. Um, this is a, a note from Sandra Frost. And she's not here. She's with her mom today. But I want to let you know up front that it's from Sandra. It's with a mixture of joy and sadness that I offer my resignation effective December 31st, 2023. I realize this is a seven-month notice. But when I knew for sure, I knew. I believe God led me to do this job as I was not looking for work when the education secretary job came open in 2005. It's been a joy to serve at First Baptist. I don't think I ever considered it a job, but a ministry. And I'm thankful to have served you. Thank you, Sandra Frost. And um, I appreciate the fact that she's always treated it as a ministry. But Fred's retired, and um, she's, people are saying, well, Fred's retired. What, what are you going to do? And she said, I just couldn't lie anymore. I had to just tell you that I'm retiring too. So we celebrate that with them and, and hope that um, she may be a couple of weeks, but you be back at work. So um, we, we don't know. But... Um, but just let Sandra know through your cards and through your notes and just encourage her. Thank her for her service. We still have several months. Um, we'll begin looking um, for a financial secretary. So if you know of someone, you can let us know and turn in a, a resume. But we won't hire that person until we get a little closer to the end so that Sandra can train them before she goes. And so would you just stand and let's close um, with our blessing um, straight out of Scripture Would you just bow your heads for a moment? May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is my prayer, and everyone said, amen. Thank you. Our ushers will be at the door. God bless you.